From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to air quality, the Front Range is in for a pretty big hand slap from the federal government. The EPA is moving to declare the region a severe air quality violator. Last summer, we had a record 48 days of bad ozone. From our climate team, CPR's Sam Brash helps us understand the consequences for individuals and businesses. Then, the consequences of medical gaslighting, which hits women and people of color disproportionately. And the poetry professor who forbids her students from writing odes to lovers. One time, she took her students to see cadavers. This was a chance for us as writers to examine the substance of the human body in this context of the Gross Anatomy Lab. Poems about bodies, death, and Dolly Parton. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Front Range can't seem to get a handle on its smog problem. And now the federal government is forcing Colorado to take further action. On Tuesday, the EPA proposed reclassifying the region from a serious to severe ozone violator. CPR Sam Brash is here to explain why that's big news for businesses and how this might lead to still higher gas prices. Hello, Sam. Good morning, Ryan. Is this move by the EPA essentially a recognition that air quality has gotten worse along the front range? You know, it is, but it's really saying it's not only gotten worse, but you guys have failed to do anything about it. Uh, All this comes down to the U.S. Clean Air Act, that famous air law first passed in 1963, and it sets standards for what are called criteria pollutants. Criteria pollutants. These are the really common pollutants that we hear about, things like carbon monoxide, lead, ozone. And the Front Range has consistently struggled to bring its summertime ozone levels below the EPA health standards. And in 2021, we saw a record 48 days with levels above that threshold. So this move from serious to severe, it's basically the EPA saying, okay, front range, you've missed many deadlines to improve your ozone levels. We're stepping in to force you to do specific things to fix it. So you're talking about a record number of those days where we see on the electronic signs, ozone alerts, you know, don't run your lawnmowers at Uh a particular time of day. (laughs) What precisely is the EPA proposing here? So there's two big things. Uh, The first would require far more Colorado companies to obtain state air pollution permits. I've heard these are things like oil and gas operations, asphalt plants, even breweries might need to get state air pollution permits. Hmm. The second would require cleaner burning gasoline across the front range, and that new mixture does tend to be more expensive. But given this timeline for the federal action, the second piece of that, the pricier gas probably won't take effect until the summer of 2024. More on the crackdown in just a moment. First, remind us what ozone is. We're talking about ground level ozone, Mm -hmm. and we don't want to breathe too much of it, Sam. Yeah, you bet. Uh, 
you know, people get confused based on exactly what you said, ground level ozone, because ozone is a really good thing way up in the stratosphere. That's what protects us from ultraviolet radiation. That's why we hear so much about the ozone layer. So it's a really good shield from sunlight, but at ground level, it's a really dangerous lung irritant. Uh, regular exposure to this pollutant is associated with asthma attacks, premature deaths, even lower birth rates. And we've known it doesn't impact everyone equally in the front range. A study from National Jewish Health in Denver last year found Latino communities tend to experience higher ozone levels. And that inequality is expected to get worse as climate change heats up. Where does ozone come from? Oh, that is such a good question with a complicated answer. Uh-huh. And, and it helps explain why ozone is such a tricky pollution problem. Other, Unlike other pollutants, you know, ozone mostly doesn't come from some tailpipe or smokestack somewhere. Uh, Many sources like cars, factories, wildfires, oil and gas operations, they emit the two basic ingredients for ozone. Those are nitrogen dioxide and hydrocarbons into the air. And then heat and sunlight, which we have plenty of in the front range, uh, cause those primary pollutants to react in the atmosphere. And to make it even more complicated, complicated ozone can also blow into Colorado from other places or even other countries. And scientists and air regulators estimate that so-called background ozone accounts for one half to two thirds of the summertime ozone problem along the front range. One half to two thirds that we don't even have control over. Right. Wow. But I think the way to think about this is we still have the power to bring our levels below those federal health standards. And Air quality officials I've spoken to say that background ozone situation isn't a reason to give up. If anything, it makes it even more urgent to control local air pollution sources and keep the air as safe as possible. What about wildfire smoke? Does that add to ozone? It does, but this is complicated. So the Front Range has had lots of unhealthy air days recently from wildfire smoke, and that is its own problem, right? Uh PM 2.5 and smoke is really bad for you. Those are tiny particulates. Exactly. Um, And smoke can lead to more ozone. It carries some ozone ingredients. But in general, based on aerial surveys here and other scientific studies of specific air monitors, it looks like it has a pretty marginal effect and that other things like oil and gas operations and you driving your vehicle tend to have a bigger effect on summertime. Okay, so drilling and transportation Mm -hmm. are something to pay attention to, contributing to this soup that then gets cooked and creates ozone. Yes. With this EPA reclassification, uh, there would indeed be a requirement for cleaner burning reformulated gasoline on the front range. Uh, You've said so far it's more expensive than conventional gas. How much more expensive? Uh, We looked into this, Veronica Penny, our data reporter, and I, based on just energy, uh, the the federal government's energy data. And it shows that regular grade reformulated gas was 35 cents more expensive per gallon over the last year. The gap grew last month to 51 cents more expensive. So again, this is a a lot pricier, but the big caveat is timing. Given the way this rule change works, the requirement probably won't go into effect until you know the summer of 2024. So it's not like tomorrow we're going to see higher gas prices because of this. Because bit. of this, at yeah. least. Yeah. Is all of this final, Sam? Like, can we count on the EPA moving ahead with these new requirements? You know, there's still some steps ahead. The agency will hold a 30-day comment period before finalizing anything. Environmental groups I've spoken to don't expect that for at least another two months. Democratic lawmakers, meanwhile, are planning nearly half of billion dollars in air quality investments. Uh, Do you get the sense that they saw this EPA move coming? 
Absolutely. You know, air regulators, state air regulators certainly have, and that's why they've asked for an additional $43 million just to handle what they need to do under this downgrade. You know, more staffers, air monitoring equipment to handle these new requirements from the EPA. The rest of that money that nearly half a billion dollars you mentioned have been set aside for incentives to help businesses clean up their operations, you know, buy electric clean trucks, things like that. And I think the big question now is whether that approach is going to be good enough to actually bring ozone levels below the federal standards. I'll be very fascinated to see if this becomes an election issue in any way. Maybe something you'll watch as well. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And I think there's a, a good chance it could be. We saw a very interesting uh, dual set of moves from the Biden administration yesterday, both trying to downgrade uh, ozone standards, not just in Denver, but in, in four other big metro areas. And at the same time, allowing for the summertime sale of of E15 ethanol gas, which we know creates more smog. So it's clear that they're really trying to walk a tightrope here and, um, you know, take steps on air quality, but also show, you know, we're concerned about high gas prices right now. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ryan. CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash. This is CPR News. Going to the doctor can be anxiety-producing, particularly for women and people of color. They may not be believed, and studies show they are more likely to be misdiagnosed. The consequences can be deadly. And this phenomenon has a new name, medical gaslighting. Medical sociologist Karen Lutfi Spencer of CU Denver studies healthcare decision-making and disparities. And Professor, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Where does this term medical gaslighting come from? I wonder when you first heard it and, and how might you define it? Um, so this is a term that we're actually hearing a lot through social media where many people, and like you said, especially women and people of color, they're describing this experience of going to the doctor to complain about a physical symptom. And they're basically dismissed, told it's psychological, it's all in their head, or it's because they're overweight or out of shape, or it's just not something they should worry about. And they're the ones using this term in social media of medical gaslighting. And how would you define it? in general? So this is something that um, I've studied since the 90s. And for a long time, people didn't seem to understand what I was was studying. um, Because we used to work off this assumption that if we just got people into the healthcare system, you would be golden, right? So the focus was on making sure people had access to care and that they had healthcare coverage and things like that. And Um, And so I think this is really getting at something that's been there for a long time, that just because you get in to see a doctor doesn't mean that you're going to get equal treatment. So I think about it in that broader context, but um, I think it's in a way sort of exciting to see more public attention on this on this issue. Not that that's good, but it's it's good to see attention to it because it's been a problem. You performed an experiment with physicians, I think involving heart disease. Uh, Briefly describe that and perhaps what you found. Yeah. So so these issues can be really hard to study, right? Because if we say, if you go into the doctor with evidence of heart disease and I go into the doctor with evidence of heart disease, 
You're getting a call even as we speak. Welcome to live radio, folks. We have guests who are in demand. They're getting calls even even as they speak. I thought I had everything turned off. Um, my apologies. Uh, so if you and I both go in, like that, it's hard to make a straight up comparison oranges to oranges. Um, because we would say like, well, you have different characteristics physically than I do. And so what we did was a video vignette um, factorial experiment. So we hired actors to portray patients and they all read from the exact same script. So they're all presenting the exact same signs and symptoms of disease, huh. but then we could compare are they male or female or older or younger or black or white, and then show these videos to doctors and see what kinds of differences we get and how they're diagnosed and treated. And so when we did this, we found that like younger women in particular were completely missed for heart attacks compared to older men. Well, that's significant for their outcomes, I imagine. It is. And so part of the story there is that uh, if you would ask doctors, well, tell me all the candidate diagnoses you are considering um, for this patient and how certain you are, like from zero to 100, um, the linchpin of the whole thing is how certain they are. So for the male patients, they might say, well, I think this could be a heart attack, but it could also maybe be a GI problem. They've got a stomach problem that's giving them pain. Um, but for women, they would list those two plus also a mental health diagnosis. And when they added in a third diagnosis, it, it depressed all of those certainty scores. So the less certain they are of, say, a cardiac diagnosis, the less likely they are to pursue it, to diagnose it and commit to it and treat it. Um, and they're more likely than for women to go down kind of this line of thinking about it being a mental health problem, like depression or anxiety. Were you able to ask the providers, I mean, after seeing the patterns emerge, why they came to the conclusions they did? Yes. So we would ask them all these sort of close-ended questions and then turn on the tape recorder and say, like, walk me through your reasoning. And one of the things that came up was I got these transcripts back from the doctors and a few of them were like, this is just like this Netter encyclopedia we saw in medical school. And I was like, what is the Netter encyclopedia? Huh. And I go and look up and it's this medical encyclopedia and I go to the angina entry in the encyclopedia and there is a full page eight by 10 color illustration of a white man, silver haired, coming out of a restaurant into the blustery night snow, clutching his chest. And I was so stunned. <laughs> like, well, if this is literally the picture that we attach to angina, then no wonder it's hard to attach that diagnosis to patients who look different. Hmm. I am fascinated, though, that younger women tended to have the added diagnosis of this might all be in your head. I mean, you, how, do you, how do you come up with that out of thin air? <laughs> That's a good, very good question. And I think is that we don't come up with it out of thin air. We have a very long history of talking about um, women in this way. And there's racial threads to this and gender threads to this that all interact. Um, but we used to talk a lot about women having hysteria and that this was tied to a problem with their uterus. If you, you know, I've looked at older articles that's like, oh, it's because their uterus isn't attached in their body. It's just floating around. So these biases, I think, are probably not new, but something that we're putting a finer point on more recently. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And my guest right now is medical sociologist Karen Latvi Spencer, who studies healthcare decision making and disparities. We're talking about medical gaslighting. And let's talk a little bit more about how race plays into this. Uh, did that emerge in these heart findings, for instance? So in that study, we did not include race. Um, it was a not very feasible logistically uh, on that study. Um, however, there is a ton of um, literature and research on race. And one big theme in that is um, tied around pain and pain management. So we definitely find that um, black patients are the least likely to have their pain sufficiently treated by healthcare providers. Um, they are monitored more closely than their white counterparts, potentially labeled as drug seekers, um, and really burdened with needing to prove their pain. We have some very racist assumptions um, in our medical care system, like ideas going also back in parallel with hysteria ideas that Black people have, for example, thicker skin, and so they're less you know, their, their pain thresholds are different than white people. Uh, I appreciate you helping us understand how so much of the history informs decisions made today. All right. Does this dynamic seem to change if, for instance, a doctor of color has a patient of color or there's a female doctor with a female patient? Yes. And so we call that concordance when patients and doctors look more alike. And so that could be their demographics, that they're the same gender or race, but they can also be concordant in their personal beliefs and their values and their styles of communication. And so when we have that perceived personal similarity, that's associated with a lot of good things like higher rates of trust, satisfaction with your doctor and intention to adhere. So that's all really good news. Um, unfortunately, most of the doctors in this country are still white men. So one thing that's actionable on this is just continued efforts to diversify that workforce. And that that could help improve outcomes. I mean, that could lead to longer lives. Um, I, I, I'm curious about whether this needs to change then at the education level right early on for would-be physicians, uh, or if it also needs to be somehow baked into continuing education so that you capture folks who might have learned in the old style. Right. I think that is excellent. That's the $64,000 question. Um, and I really think about this sort of as layers of an onion, um, that there's, there's several things going on at the same time. And some of them are at the level of individual providers, and therefore we can think about training and education. But we have at least a couple big issues going on where we can have well-intentioned doctors out there who are working in systems that create a setup for some of these problems. So one is that we have way, way less research on women's biologies. For a long time, we purposely kept women out of clinical trials, out of fears that they might be pregnant and there could be harm to a fetus. So we just accumulated this load of information about men's bodies and how diseases look for them. So you can imagine how that can lead to things getting missed or misunderstood in women, if women present looking at all different. And then also, secondly, another layer to the onion is just like the rest of us doctors are more likely to make biased decisions when they're stressed, 
when they're cognitively overloaded or when there's uncertainty. And our healthcare system has a lot of time and financial constraints, like, right? Seeing a lot of patients in short periods of time. And so decision-making under pressure can also lead to things getting missed or misunderstood in different populations. Okay. So there's work to do on the individual and, as you say, the systemic level. Uh, In the little time we have left, I'd like to talk about what patients ought to do with this information. I mean, it strikes me that getting a second opinion might be important and particularly important uh, perhaps for women and for patients of color, but that that's expensive uh, both in time and money. Um, I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, right, it's sort of a two-pronged answer that it's always good to take someone with you to the doctor if you can, or to be, to go with someone who you care about and just mm. be an advocate. And something that goes hand in hand with that is feeling, feeling like you can ask more questions, that you can pursue more doctors. But at the same time, I think that's a really demoralizing answer because it puts the onus on patients in all these ways, right? Financially, time-wise, emotionally, you're already not feeling well. And then it's, the onus is on patients and families to figure out the healthcare system. Um, that said, I think that is something that individuals can do just because the doctor says one thing does not mean that's the whole answer. Well, thank you for helping us unpack this. I really appreciate the perspective. Well, thank you for having me. Medical sociologist Karen Lutfi Spencer of CU Denver speaking with us about medical gaslighting. Congress is taking a serious look at decriminalizing marijuana, following in the footsteps of states like Colorado. There's no guarantee this bill will get final approval in Washington, but it is complicating more limited efforts to legitimize the cannabis industry. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Colorado Democratic Congressman Ed Perlmutter has been on a mission these last couple of years to get the Senate to take up and pass his Safe Banking Act. It's a bill that gives legal cannabis companies access to banking and financial services. The House has advanced it multiple times, but Perlmutter told Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen last week that having his party in control of the Senate hasn't helped the bill's chances. You know, basically from the Republicans' point of view, too big, too broad. Uh, Now Senator Brown is the chair of the committee, too limited, too narrow. Chuck Smith is head of Colorado Leads, a coalition that promotes the state's cannabis industry and ran his own company for over a dozen years. He says lack of access to the financial sector is one of the biggest issues facing legal cannabis companies. It's created a very unsafe environment with the amount of cash that is uh, still being transacted without, you know, access to, you know, to normal banking operations. He's disappointed that safe banking has stalled in the Senate. The bill is up against an age-old problem in Congress, one that crops up around thorny issues. Do you try and pass a small, targeted bill that solves a specific problem, a la safe banking, or do you go big? Democrats in the Senate are trying to go big and tackle the whole issue. This cannot just be about simple legalization. It has to be about restorative justice. That's New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. He, along with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Oregon's Ron Wyden, are leading the effort for legalization. Booker says overwhelmingly those punished for marijuana are low-income black and brown people. Now, Booker agrees giving cannabis businesses access to banking services is important. But the, the reality is, is that there are a lot of very big money interests that want that done. 
And if we get that done, we lose a, a invaluable sweetener to get the restorative justice, the expungement of records, the kind of things done that there isn't as much money behind. Booker hopes to unveil their legislation soon, but Colorado leads Chuck Smith worries. It might be too big and will fail. The perfect is the enemy of the good right now. To get it passed in the Senate, they'll need 60 votes. And Amber Littlejohn, executive director of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, doesn't think that is likely. We struggle to get the most mundane thing done in Congress. So equitably legalizing cannabis is not going to be something we get done this Congress. She wants the federal prohibition to end. She agrees records for nonviolent marijuana offenses should be expunged. But she thinks the groundwork for equity could start with the passage of safe banking. GOP Congressman Dave Joyce of Ohio has been working on cannabis issues for years and sees hurdles for a wide-ranging legalization bill. And when you have a big bill like that, you give too many people who are like, maybe they're off-ramps. Say, I, you know, I like this part, but I don't like that part. So they're from like, I vote for it. The House did pass a comprehensive legalization bill called the Moore Act last week. But it only got three Republican votes, essentially condemning it to the Senate's legislative graveyard. When it comes to cannabis, Joyce thinks smaller might be better. And then try to bring a coalition around those manageable pieces to see which ones have the energy to get over the top. But his GOP House colleague, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, sees problems with a piecemeal approach. My fear is, though, if we caught it up and do it, we'll do safe banking and then won't revisit it for 20 years, right? Because people will feel like, well, they checked that box, they're done now. But you just can't stop there. <laughs> She's introduced her own legalization bill in the House, a more limited approach than what the House Democrats just passed. The state's Reform Act would treat cannabis like alcohol and have some criminal justice elements. She's hopeful this can open the door to some real bipartisan discussion and consensus building on marijuana reform. And beggars can't be choosers in this space. Like, we have got to pull our head out of the sand and do what's right. One thing almost everyone agrees on is that the status quo is unsustainable as the number of states that legalize continues to grow. But whether Congress's next step on cannabis will be big or small remains to be seen. Advocates say the one scenario they'd like to avoid this Congress is having the big and small options fail. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with poetry that isn't too precious or predictable. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. On one side of the looking glass, Colorado is a national model for how to run elections. On the other, it's ground zero for some of the most potent election conspiracy theories out there. It was actually Tina that talked me out of a hand count. She's the one that said we could actually trust our elections. So how she got from there to here, I will never know. How one clerk's journey to election denialism is challenging the whole system in the latest episode of the CPR politics podcast, Purplish, everywhere you listen. And now for something that's both campy and profound. That's how I would describe the new poetry collection from Denver's Nikki Beer. It's called Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes. A pop image of Dolly Parton graces the cover. Beer has twice won the Colorado Book Award and is an associate English professor at CU Denver. And welcome to the program, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. Way to be campy and profound. 
Those are those are two things that are hard to do at the same time, and yet you manage. Your poems are like a cabinet of curiosities, and I just couldn't shake the feeling that you might collect things. Is that true? That is incredibly true. I have an extensive collection of animal skulls and bones around my house. I have a deer skull and bones, a skunk, beaver, and rabbit skulls. I have a wild boar skull, a warthog skull, pig's teeth, a pig's jaw, and a baby turtle skeleton. Wow. What do you think it is about these bones, these skeletons that speak to you? I think it's that I find the structure of bodies extraordinary and the fact that they're so hidden, right? But there's this wonderful beauty inside animal bodies and in our bodies in terms of, you know, the aesthetics of a rib cage or in the case of the deer skull, there's these beautiful fissures that knit the plates of the skull together that, you know, you know, if you get up close, they just look like almost like these beautiful little thin swirls of water. Hmm. And so there's something about beauty that's hidden that appeals to me. And and I think also in terms of how they relate to our ideas of mortality and how mortality can be a very frightening thing to think of. But if you actually look at the aesthetics of anatomy, there can be a lot of beauty in maybe things that we may fear. This leads, I think, right into a poem that is set at a historical museum in Colorado. And before you read it for us, set it up a bit. Yes. So this uh, poem was inspired by a visit I made with my best friend, Maya Garantz. She's an artist and a writer, and the book is dedicated to her. And this was a visit that we made to the Deer Trail Pioneer Historical Museum. In Deer Trail, Colorado. And so this is a poem about a certain specimen of taxidermy that I saw in the museum. Okay, and we'll let the poem do the talking. Thank then. you. <laughs> Two-headed taxidermied calf. I hated myself for pitying it nearly 30 years dead and alive for only a few hours, as if that could do any good. But there was something in its tender swirls of ochre hair that the amateur taxidermist couldn't quite make laughable. Yes, the eyes were badly shaped, but I almost believed them anyway. When they cut the mother open, did the mouths bawl in unison or harmony? Did the lungs fill twice as fast? I tried to convince myself none of it was real, not even the notarized signatures of the rancher and vet, remembering that faking provenance is a hoax's easiest gamble. I thought of the days before the pills and the large stone my bad chemicals made for me to carry, a secret sideshow attraction to myself, the woman who smiles. Step right up and observe her perfect imitation of a person who doesn't want to die. Caesar was a twin, the other stillborn. They say he believed if he swept his arm across enough of the world, he'd finally catch the brother who'd abandoned him to dream alone in the dark. I reached past the display's blunted barbed wire to stroke one coarse flank. When the animal was dying, Was it relieved it wasn't dying alone? Did all four eyes close at the same time, two final streams of milk breath leaking into the early prairie light? I lied before, about Caesar being born a twin. Sorry. I just wanted to see 
if I was still as good at it as I used to be, to see if I could still smooth a little poison over glass and polish it to a diverting flash, a mirror showing everything but itself. The story of a two-headed taxidermied calf in Deer Trail, Colorado. Did it take air in twice as fast? Was it glad it wasn't dying alone? And yet that poem is also about telling the truth and not telling the truth. It is. Um, this is probably the book in which I'm writing the most explicitly about my mental illness. I have anxiety and depression, and I've been on medication for these for over 10 years now. Um, but it is about a period in my life before dealing with these mental illnesses and feeling like I had to perform wellness and just constantly make people think I was okay. So that's part of what informs my interest in, in illusion and deception is often how it is necessary to survive. Not always healthy, but it is a mode that sometimes we default to just to get through our days. Hmm. I wondered as I read this collection, if you've thought about what you want to have done with your own body after death. Is that, a, is that something you give thought to? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I've I thought about cremation pretty much ever since I first learned that it was an option as a child. Not that I've you know, sat around in my childhood just thinking about <laughs> cremation all the time, uh, but this idea of being scattered rather than being buried. I love this idea of just sort of spreading out across the world and just sort of being taken where, you know, ever wind or water uh, might lead me. I, I love that idea. I don't love cemeteries. There's something about, I don't know, just the fixedness of them that I don't like the thought of for myself after death, that I just kind of want to be released and not be in any central place after I go. Because I do think that's probably what will happen to my spirit as well. So why not let a version of that happen to my body? Ah. <sighs> That scattering, that everywhereness. Exactly. And I think I take comfort when someone dies in thinking they're not anywhere, they're everywhere. So do I. I understand that you took your students to like an anatomy lab or a cadaver lab. Will, will you tell us this story? I did. So this was a trip that happened, a class trip that happened in 2016. And I went with my students from my senior poetry workshop to the Gross Anatomy Lab at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And this was facilitated with the help of Dr. Danielle Royer from the School of Medicine. And this was a chance for us as writers as poets to, you know, examine the substance of the human body in this context of the Gross Anatomy Lab. How was it? It was profoundly moving for myself and from what I heard my students as well. Being able to see the human body, you know, in various stages of dissection laid out was just an incredible gift. And uh, Dr. Royer, she refers to the donors as our silent teachers. And that really is what it felt like, that we had these bodies before us that were teaching us about ourselves in ways that, you know, we may have never had access to before. I mean, it's just a, an environment that strikes me as rife with imagery, rife with emotion. And it makes me think of the fact that you have a list of forbidden topics 
for your poetry students? I do. I do. For my classes, generally, I don't allow them to write about pets unless they are truly exotic, like a mongoose or a llama. Okay. I don't allow if, if them. Your, if your student has a mongoose, it's a different call you should be making. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I want to hear all about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the class, anyway, they're not allowed to write about breakup poems, and they're not allowed to write about what I call I like, love, want him, her, them, but they, he, she doesn't like, love, want me. Um, you know, poems about unrequited desire and lust. Is it just too facile? It's part of my, I see part of my job as showing my students all the other things that poetry can be about besides the subjects that they default to, like breakups and unrequited love and puppies. Right. Poetry can be about... A two-headed taxidermied calf. Exactly. Or waiting in line at Walmart or about their anxiety or about an old pair of socks. And so driving them into – well, driving them, but but encouraging them, pushing them into areas that they may, may not immediately see as worthy uh, subjects of poetry. I want them to see that, yes, it is. Poetry is there for everything in their lives, not just the narrow uh, subject matter that they may assume. Mm, I think it's really good for poetry consumers as well. Just to remember how broad that world is. Okay, time for another poem then from you. Um, let's stick with a, a more down-tempo theme before we move on to, I don't know, I suppose what could be the campier aspects of your work. I'd like you to read Elegy because it's one of the few pieces of art to capture for me the strangeness of being a kid and learning another kid has died. Read it for us, then we'll talk about it. And a note that it does contain an example of, of adult language. Elegy. I never liked the dead boy. When the accident happened, he became our parents' lessons to us about being careful. They even seemed to love him a little for how useful he'd become. I spent the school assembly they gave him looking at the necks of all the kids in front of me, imagining a blue dot centered on each one, like buttons waiting to be jabbed. The blow-up photo had a dopey haze to it, and he squinted back at us as though through a steam bath of honey. Everyone cried, even the assistant principal he'd once called a bitch to her face. Light peered through the high window's mesh, stopped short in midair, touching nothing but a sullen ribbon caught in the rafters, dangling the rubber of its spent balloon. I already knew it would never drop in my lifetime. What does that poem capture for you? For me, it captures... This moment in childhood when you realize irreversibly horrible things can happen to other children, I think it's a moment in our lives when the rules seem to change. Mm. Uh, right. Old people die. That's kind of the thought you have right. if you're acquainted with death as a kid, at first at least. Yeah, there's this feeling, I think, and keep, and this is to say this is a very white, middle-class American point of view. But within that point of view, there is a sense of being kind of, you know, somewhat I don't know, swaddled and protected in your life. And so when you realize that there are tragedies in the world from which children will not be exempt, I think that's a moment when you really start to think about things in a different way as a kid. Well, thanks for that acknowledgement that there are uh, folks, of course, for whom 
a child's death is something that they're acquainted with quite early on. Exactly. All right. One last poem, Nikki Beer, based on your family's love of Dolly Parton's amusement park, Dollywood. Yes, my in-laws are season ticket holders to Dollywood, which is in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And, you know, this is a, a very queer poem. And Tennessee is a state that has proved itself to not always be the most queer-friendly place and also passed some significant anti-LGBTQ legislation last year. Um, but this is poem is a kind of fantasy scenario that exists only in my imagination. Okay, well, let's dive into your imagination. This is called uh, Drag Day at Dollywood. Uh, This poem is preceded with an epigraph from Dolly Parton, and she's talking about her drag impersonators. And she says, some of them look more like me than I do. (laughs) (laughs) They're good, in other words. Okay. (laughs) Drag day at Dollywood. Blue beehives whirl and loopily ascend long paper wands. Candied apples smash into shades of vixen, strike me pink, cherries in the snow. Lame by the square mile ripples under the Tennessee sun. From a distance, the mountain sidewinder looks like a drunk, bejeweled caterpillar. The screams sound the same as on any other day. By closing time, 782 press-on nails will have been lost. A few contrarians bust out their best patsies or lorettas, dark bouffants stippling the deluge of blonde. Someone's great aunt comes as Kenny Rogers and strokes her beard like a newly adopted lapdog. A bus from Atlanta unleashes two dozen dollies in matching bowling jackets, gutter queens sprawled across their backs in lilac script. To relieve the boredom at the mystery mind line, someone hollers, When I say homo, you say sapiens. Homo, sapiens, homo, sapiens. Dollies line the perimeter of the bald eagle sanctuary, watching the raptors swoop stoically on the other side of the netted enclosure. They mate for life, Dolly exclaims, reading from Wikipedia on her phone. Aw, Dolly says. Ugh, says Dolly. A tall dolly gives a short dolly a piggyback ride through Jukebox Junction, making a laughing, lumbering chimera of poly satin and fringe. Dolly holds back Dolly's hair as she vomits purple slush and kettle corn into a bank of azaleas. Dolly, with weary patience, explains to Dolly why she can't pet her service dog. Dollies grasp turkey legs in their fists, tear flesh from bone. Thousands of pairs of dolly lungs breathe in gasoline and grease, breathe out glitter. Dolly visits the restroom to check her wig and loses track of herself in the mirrors. Dolly drifts along an automated river, an undiagnosed tumor humming gently under her life jacket. Dolly holds a thumb and forefinger up to the setting sun, pinches it, and lovingly places it in Dolly's back pocket. Dolly, exhausted and sunburned, collapses onto a bench, rests her head on Dolly's breast, who rests her head on Dolly's breast, who rests her head on Dolly's breast, on Dolly's breast. Drag Day at Dollywood by Nikki Beer. Nikki, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. 
If you need a love that's true, need someone to stand by you, here I am. Oh, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> Denver poet Nikki Beer, she's been featured in The New Yorker and Best American Poetry. Her new collection is called Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes. Back after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Here I am, reaching out to give you love that you are without. I can help you find what you've been searching for. When you say Tabor to Coloradans today, they might first think of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. But the word is more than an acronym. It's a nod to Horace Tabor, who came to Leadville in the late 1850s to strike it rich. After two decades of backbreaking work and grinding poverty, Tabor hit a mother load of silver. He invested the profits in other successful mines and quickly became one of the richest men in Colorado and Lieutenant Governor and, briefly, U.S. Senator. When he left his wife to marry the much younger Baby Doe in a lavish wedding in Washington, D.C., it was national news and a disgrace back in Denver. Then came financial ruin in the Panic of 1893. Horace crawled back to the mines as a laborer, hoping for another big strike that never came. He died penniless in 1899. But 10,000 people attended the funeral of the Silver King, Horace Tabor. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with support from Sheets and Giggles. Back in the day, most schools confiscated any video games they found on campus. But as CPR's Paolo Chalceda reports, the Colorado High School Activities Association now encourages students to pick up controllers at school. Let's hold off on the ban on Nico for a second, then. The halls at Harrison High School in Colorado Springs are largely empty, except for a small, windowless room where coaches Tom McCartney and Sean Hart are meeting with their team to prepare. It's game day. The five athletes are raring to go, but there are no team uniforms, no referees, and they're sitting in front of computers. My name is Mariana Marquez. I'm 17, I'm a senior, and I play League of Legends. Marquez and her teammates are on Harrison's High eSports team. They play League of Legends, an online multiplayer game with two teams of five. It's tower defense. So you have to like kill the towers and there's like minions that have to come down, so you have to kill them too. If that description doesn't make much sense to you, that's okay. Lee has a lot of rules, and it can be super confusing for the uninitiated. It's just one of several video games being played competitively in Colorado high schools. There's also Super Smash Bros, a fighting game featuring popular characters created by Nintendo, and Rocket League, which can only really be described as soccer with flying cars. These games are played by more than 100 high school teams registered in Colorado. And according to Rashawn Davis, who oversees esports for the state's high school sports authority, they want that number to grow. I would love to see us at half of Colorado schools. The emergence of video game players as school representatives is a far cry from the culture Harrison High coach Tom McCartney experienced as a student. 
He said his school never made space for people outside the typical archetypes, like varsity athletes and student government leaders, to excel outside the classroom. As a teacher and now a coach, he hopes esports provides an opportunity. Let's start their run now. Let's build their confidence now so they don't have to wait until 33, 34 when they find themselves. For many students at Bear Creek High School in Lakewood, the esports team is their only extracurricular activity, a social outlet that would not exist without the support of their school. Daniel Pham, a junior who normally plays for the League of Legends team, isn't competing this year because the school couldn't put together a full five-player squad. Despite that, he still hangs out with his former teammates online and in person. Without esports, I wouldn't have friends that like already graduated and went to college. And there's other like seniors and juniors and different types of people that I never met in my school. Some students want to pursue esports at the collegiate level. Some universities give scholarships to skilled players, sometimes even offering a full ride. If players are really good, they can move into playing for a team in a professional league. Players in the Overwatch League, one of the most popular and competitive esports leagues in the world, make an average base salary of $106,000. Others, like Bear Creek senior Seth Malota, who plays Super Smash Bros., wants to make the video games he plays. When you understand a game down to its core mechanics, its frame data, its little tiny um, integrations, you can get such a feeling for how the developers made it, and you can take little stylistic choices and, and integrate them yourself. Some students I talked to said they're now interested in computer engineering because they learn how to build gaming computers to satisfy their hobby. But providing equipment has been a difficult problem for many schools trying to start esports programs of their own. With hardware prices ranging anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to over a thousand dollars for an efficient gaming computer, students and schools in lower income communities have an inherent disadvantage to other teams. In some schools, the only students able to compete are those whose parents can afford to buy them what they need. Harrison High co-coach Sean Hart said they were only able to get the team off the ground by donating their own property to players. The harsh reality of it is if we hadn't provided those things from our own homes, we wouldn't be able to compete on some of these games. Teams with economic need could apply for equipment from some organizations, but there's limited availability. Coaches are also trying to foster an environment where everyone is welcome. Some teams' rosters are completely made up of boys. Jessica Salazar, the esports coach at Bear Creek High School, says part of the struggle is helping teenagers navigate the perilous world of hormones. Last year we had a girl on the Rocket League team, and there was some drama with all the boys liking her, and so she didn't come back. There are other hurdles state officials, coaches, and students will have to face as the sport grows. But Colorado's next generation of esports hopefuls believe those are just growing pains. I'm Paolo Shasada, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today. We are a multiplayer experience. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're listening to CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.